to KBOO Portland. Barriers, Queer Activists on Health, a book 
that's come out this year from PM Press. Welcome, Adrian. So nice to be here with you today. Thank you. Um, let's start by having you uh, introduce yourself for our listeners. That'd be great. I'm a queer activist uh, from Pennsylvania who leads an LGBT community center in Allentown, Pennsylvania, roughly two hours from New York City and an hour from Philadelphia. So I live and work um, with the queer community in an underserved part of the country and a place where LGBT people sometimes struggle to access uh, basic health care services because of geographic barriers to care. I recently edited uh, queer, uh, Bodies and Barriers, Queer Activists on Health, which is an anthology of writing by 26 queer activists from around the world who write about the challenging experiences that we have had trying to access health care. Our hope is that this is a book that can help to inform the health care system and make it work for queer bodies like ours. Thanks, Adrian. You um, founded Bradbury Sullivan LGBT Community Center in Allentown. I, I have, is that right? Yeah. Okay. I, I've been seeing that name, the name of that organization, for a long time, for years. I've been, been uh, sort of had a, a, the fourth of an eye on um, the work coming out of it. Can you tell us about uh, Bradbury Sullivan Center? Yeah, I think a lot of times people think about the queer movement as existing in our major metro areas, you know, Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco, Miami. And to be sure, there's great activism that happens in, in our really large cities. But uh, queer people are everywhere, including in uh, rural communities and small cities. And in our kind of uh, Rust Belt city of, of Allentown, Pennsylvania, um, we have a very active and large and vibrant queer community. Um, when we started Bradbury Sullivan Center, it was out of a desire to ensure that LGBTQ people could access programs and resources and arts and culture that celebrates our community and our history where we live instead of having to drive a couple hours to access these same programs in a much larger city. And uh, we are a um, decidedly activist organization, so um, we actually just sued the Trump administration for the second time to protect uh, queer people from uh, discriminatory um, rules that the Trump administration has put forth that would specifically harm queer people's access to health care. So uh, some people outside of Pennsylvania might know us from these lawsuits. Uh, we sued last year to stop the Trump administration's denial of care rule, and we just uh, filed another lawsuit um, in June uh, to stop the uh, Trump administration's uh, revision of the Affordable Care Act non-discrimination protections where the Trump administration uh, removed uh, gender identity from the protected classes in the Affordable Care Act. And that lawsuit is uh, is early in its stages? What, what is the, the, the... Our lawsuit last year for the to block the denial of care rule was successful in district court um, and the rule was actually um, declared unconstitutional in district court and, and, and um, vacated in its entirety. The Trump administration has now appealed that, so now we, we're waiting. Um, our current lawsuit was just filed uh, because the, the, the rule that the Trump administration finalized actually came down on the anniversary of Pulse in the middle of Pride Month during a global pandemic 
and at a time when many of us are, are organizing and uh, and um, activisting for um, to support Black Lives, uh, the Trump administration thought it would be a, a, a useful time to try to remove trans people's access to health care. Um, we know there's already barriers to care at every step of the way for LGBT people when it comes to accessing health care. And um, access to non-discriminatory health care is essential. So um, ensuring that this rule is not enacted is very important. Yeah, thanks for that. How, how, um, how different from other community centers uh, in, in your sense or in your recounting, Adrian, is it that uh, a community center like Bradbury um, Sullivan would take on these lawsuits, That's, uh, that kind of work? Well, we advocate for our community, and we know that health equity is a dream that is not yet realized. So um, part of that activism has to be sometimes standing up even to the Trump administration when there's attacks on our access to health care. Um, but uh, our activism is not limited to suing the Trump administration. We also um, worked this year, for example, to ensure that Pennsylvania was collecting uh, sexual orientation and gender identity data related to COVID-19. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of health policy work because it's essential. And, you know, to, to be clear, without grassroots local LGBT organizations, there really, there's no national LGBT movement without local organizing without local activism. Uh, activism has to happen in, in community, and we're very pleased to be able to be one of many community centers across the country that that tries to be a, a strong and fierce voice for our community. Wonderful. Thanks, Adrian. That um, brings me to something that I was thinking about. Uh, while reading the book you've edited, uh, Bodies and Barriers, Queer Activists on Health, which is um, this, uh, my sense that uh, we have we have so many different conversations um, about uh, LGBTQ bodies, about LGBTQ health, about community health, um, and we, we're sort of still still uh, having this conversation piecemeal in many ways. So there isn't, I think, some sense of what. Um, uh, the queer lifespan could look like or what kinds of challenges could be in there. And I think this book is a, is a nice step on um, just, just, just beginning to integrate some of the uh, many aspects we have to face. Yeah, I mean, I think that for healthcare providers, um, uh, especially those who went to medical school or nursing school or another health professional program, um, you know they're they're limited in the medical training that they receive when it comes to LGBT health. Often in medical school is limited to between one and four uh, hours, lecture hours, not credit hours, dedicated to LGBT health. Most of which is focused on uh, on HIV or on basic cultural competency, which is not the same as providing medical training. So what we're left with is LGBT healthcare consumers. That's people like you and me, or people that. All of us, frankly, are healthcare consumers because we all are accessing healthcare services um, who end up having negative experiences. Um, there's a presumption that some heterosexual cisgender people have, which is that, um, which is that there are certain health issues that are 
so-called LGBT health issues, and HIV might be one of them as an example. Um, the reality is um, all of us have skin, so therefore accessing LGBT-affirming dermatologic care is an LGBT health issue. And uh, anyone who um, needs to see a gynecologist who's part of the LGBT community would probably affirm that gynecologic care that's LGBT welcoming is uh, very important for their health. And older adults, as they age, um, you know, there's many caregiving concerns for LGBT older adults. So ensuring that senior care agencies um, have policies in place and also uh, um, specific training uh, to ensure that LGBT older adults receive the care that they need as they age, which includes housing that they need as they age, is critical uh, to the health of the LGBT older adults. I mean, basically our health is broad. It affects us from birth through death and, um, and, and our health is everything. Without our health, we don't have our lives. So, um, so LGBT health is all health and, um, LGBT care is primary care. So when we're talking about changing the healthcare system to be LGBT inclusive, what we're talking about is the entire healthcare system has to uh, be responsive to LGBT health needs. So we can't just go in and put a little Band-Aid on it and say, well, there's now, you know, this one doctor in this city that, that's, um, you know, that, that understands LGBT health. That's not how it works. We need the entire system to, to work for our bodies. Um, that includes health insurance that actually covers LGBT health needs. Frankly, it, it probably means Medicare for all or a similar single-payer system where um, cost is removed because we know many LGBT people can't uh, afford care even when it is available. But um, but even within the current healthcare system, health insurance that that decidedly um, covers LGBT health needs equitably, um, it includes access to um, to medical professionals who are not only non-judgmental and um, and caring people who believe that they provide non-discriminatory care, but that primary care clinicians all over the country are ready and willing to prescribe PrEP and knowledgeable about how to how to manage clients on PrEP. Um, uh, that's not the case in many cities. Uh, in many cities, there's barriers to accessing basic services. And so LGBT health is very broad. And, uh, and unfortunately, um, many of us have experienced barriers to care throughout our lives. And these barriers um, cause us as a population to delay care or avoid seeking care entirely. And at the end of the day, that's a patient safety issue. It's a, it's a, it's a big problem for our entire healthcare system. And it's, it's something that needs to be prioritized as we work to um, either fix or frankly replace aspects of our healthcare system in this country. Indeed, thanks for um, thanks for mentioning the degree to which medical training itself, uh, in particular, is um, falls very short on uh, teaching providers about bodies and how people use them and why they want to. <laughs> um, let's let's um, talk about bodies and barriers. You uh, edited this, and it was issued uh, earlier this year. Yeah, it was just released on March 1st, um, so right before um, most states went into quarantine, um, which uh, um, certainly changed uh, any concept of um, book events 
in person at least, but um, but I've been having some great conversations virtually. And I should mention that the book is published by TM Press, which is a radical independent publisher that publishes some really great activist books, and they're based in Oakland, uh, California. Um, the book includes essays by 26 queer activists from around the world. Um, I wrote two chapters and edited the book, but it's not it's not the story of only one person. When you've heard one LGBT person's story, you've heard one story. So this is um, you know this is a collection of stories of patient narratives that uh, can hopefully help to communicate in our own words what some of the challenges are. Adrian, what are the chapters that you worked on? So I um, I did two chapters. One I co-authored with um, one of my former employees. Um, and that was about um, uh, it was about um, smoking in the LGBT community, but specifically it was about working to ensure that um, that there would be um, queer spaces that are smoke free in many parts of the country every queer space that you enter is a literal smoke-filled room. And um, tobacco is actually the leading cause of death for LGBTQ people in this country. So um, really important uh, work to try to advocate for queer spaces, whether it's gay bars, pride festivals, uh, or more to, to go smoke-free. I also, a lot of my work is actually around anal health. Um, and so uh, my other chapter is called That Asto, Anal Health for the LGBT Community. And uh, in that chapter, we look at, um, you know, anal pap tests and uh, hep hepatitis A vaccinations and the importance of A clinicians really um, providing these services on a more and asking the right questions so they know who to, you know, who, who needs who needs care. Uh, for example, I talk in this chapter about how, like, I've been out my entire adult life. Um, I, I think I have a great doctor, um, but I asked him during a physical one year, how come he had never asked me if I need an anal pap test? And his response was, that's a great question. We don't really have guidelines for that. So um, similarly, you know, uh, many, many people have never had a doctor. Many people who are over the age of 25 today have never had a doctor ask them if they need a hepatitis A vaccination. And, you know, we, we have hep A outbreaks in most states right now. Uh, and yet, um, uh, nobody's talking about how this is sexually transmitted, at least in, uh, more pervasively in the LGBT community. And there's a, there's a vaccination that can keep us safe. Um, so, um, you know, we talked a little bit about that. But, you know, every author in this book really comes from a different perspective. So, for example, Liz Margulies, who founded the National LGBT Cancer Network, writes about her chapters called Gender, Cancer, and Me. And she, she writes about uh, the gendered aspects of cancer care and how it's such a strong barrier for lesbian and bi women, especially for trans men, though. Um, uh, Laura Jacobs, um, uh, she's the board chair of Callum Lord uh, LGBT Health Center in New York City, and she shares an experience of going to an ear, nose, and throat doctor and um, having a very traumatic uh, anti-trans experience um, when, in her words, the doctor was about to you know, yield a, wet, a knife inside of her throat. Um, uh, and so, you know, the challenges with that. Justin Sabiatanis, um, who lives in, in, um, in the Midwest uh, and is a theologian and a minister, um, writes about bereavement support groups and shares an experience from when, uh, 
when a, his spouse died and really needed to access an LGBT-specific bereavement option. Um, or Katie Dalk, who's uh, intersex and writes a chapter about informed consent for intersex children. Um, and uh, in that chapter, she talks about how uh, if she could say something to her younger self and the doctors and parents of her younger life, it would be that um, that they should teach her about her body so that she can teach them about herself. And so this book is really about um, telling our stories and speaking to you know, telling them in a way that hopefully speaks to healthcare professionals, policymakers, uh, and activists, whether it's activists for the queer community or activists for, um, for fixing the broken healthcare system. Broken indeed. You're right. I, I, um, I know, I, I've got to admit, I'm 49. I know nothing about, uh, you know, cancer screenings. I doubt that I've ever had a conversation with anyone about that. Um, and I don't know a thing about Hep A, and I don't think I knew that I didn't know until I read the book. And so, like, anal are an example of, of the blatant uh, differences in how healthcare is, is handled in this country. So under the Affordable Care Act, cervical pap tests count as an essential health benefit, which means that it's covered um, with, uh, you know, with no, no cost. So there's no deductible, no coinsurance no copay for an essential health benefit like a cervical pap test. An anal pap test is a screening for anal cancer, and a cervical pap test is a screening for cervical cancer, both of which are HPV-related cancers. An anal pap test is actually easier to administer because it doesn't require finding a cervix. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a very simple 30-second procedure, and yet it's not covered by most insurance companies in this country. Um, even though the cost is clearly known because insurance companies know how much a cervical pap test costs. Um, so that's just, and, and in addition to the lack of insurance coverage, there's also many providers that, uh, primary care doctors, for example, who will openly say that they don't know how to administer an anal pap test. Uh, it is, it is easier than administering a rapid strep test. So, uh, it's a very simple procedure and anyone who's a receptive partner in anal sex, regardless of sexual orientation, is someone who may want to talk to their doctor about an anal pap test. But one of the problems is that many doctors will say that they don't know. Um, and uh, that's a, a pervasive challenge for um, for the queer community. Yeah, well said. <laughs> It makes me wonder what what the longer term good outcome for an LGBTQ health movement might look like. How do we integrate these concerns, um, develop a more widespread shared language, um, and be able to advocate for ourselves uh, collectively, communally, uh, with more success? The U.S. government defines health equity as, quote, the attainment of the highest quality of health for all people. That's in the federal document called Healthy People 2020. Um, the attainment of the highest quality of health for all people. Uh, that's a dream that's not yet realized, but that's what, that's what, that's what good looks like. It means that all people can attain the highest level of health. And, um, 
The only way that we get there is by addressing many problems. One of them are um, structural problems in terms of problematic policies. Another one's a training issue um, that healthcare uh, professionals need to be adequately trained, not only on language and cultural issues, but medical training to address the unique LGBT healthcare needs that exist. And uh, and then there's also, you know, relatively low funding levels for promoting LGBT health. And so, you know, the government needs to look at where the disparities are and invest in reducing and eliminating disparities for the LGBT patient population. Um, and then, of course, the access to care issues more broadly, geographic barriers to accessing care and cost barriers. Um, you know, personally, I think that uh, we address a lot of these issues by adopting a Medicare for All system that, um, that you know, changes how healthcare is paid for in this country and removes the challenges of somebody not seeking care because they can't afford it or they can't afford health insurance. So, uh, but, but Medicare for All alone doesn't create health equity. It has to also include how we train healthcare professionals. So, medical schools, nursing schools, social work, counseling schools, these programs also need to change their curricula to address disparities in a, in a more structured way uh, and, to, um, and to really ensure that it's um, almost a graduation requirement, if not one that, uh, that their students, um, you know, develop at least baseline knowledge of how to uh, provide medical care for the LGBT patient population. Thanks for that. Uh, that brings me to um, something, Adrian, I, I think folks can always use just a little primer on. What is Medicare for All? So it's a single-payer health care system, essentially, and um, uh, I'm not as concerned with what we call Medicare for All. I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders called it Medicare for All, uh, but um, other countries will say universal health care. Um, really what we're talking about is a single-payer system, so um, where uh, um, everybody has access to health care through um, essentially we pay taxes, those taxes pay for other social benefits, and that, is, that would include access to health care. Um, and uh, I'm not... Um, I'm not an economist, so I can't speak to uh, how that works financially, but I can speak to how it would work for the LGBT patient, which is that um, whether or not you have insurance, you can access care from a doctor or a specialist or, um, you know, uh, wherever you need to go to access that care, it should be available without, and, and it obviously would depend on how the government would implement this, but ideally without uh, without barriers, so without saying, oh, that's not covered under this plan or that's not covered under this plan, but instead just saying the care that you need is the care that you get. Um, healthcare, if we believe healthcare is a human right, um, just like we believe education is a human right, or at least, you know, many of us do, that um, why are we nickel and diming and saying, well, healthcare is a human right if you can afford it? Well, that's not a human right. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's more of a health sales system than a health care system. And so we want to, um, you know, make sure that, that all people have access to high quality of health. If that's the dream, if that's the goal of health equity, we have to address costs as a piece of that. 
Uh, I do want to be clear, though, the book is not a book about Medicare for All. It's not a book about how we achieve Medicare for All. It's a book about patient narratives, so LGBT people telling our own stories about our bodies, our queer bodies, the lives we live, and the healthcare we experience. Um, uh, and there are solutions, there are recommended solutions in the book, um, one of which is addressing cost as a barrier to care. Let's talk about how the book is structured. Uh, you split it up into four um, segments of the lifespan. Yeah, uh, so LGBT people experience barriers to care from birth through death. So I organized this book to start with um, youth and to go through older adults. So the four sections are youth, young adults, middle-aged adults, and, and older adults. Um, one of the first chapters is about navigating pediatric care for trans youth. And the final chapter is about bereavement support for, um, you know, for people as they grieve. And there's literally everything in between. Um, I structured it this way because while every LGBTQ person is different and all of us have different healthcare needs and challenges, all of us experience healthcare challenges in some way or another throughout our lifespan. Um, you know, we, we might not always identify in the moment uh, an experience as a challenge, um, but when we really think about it, it's uh, how did we feel when we filled out that intake form at that doctor's office? Did we feel that we could be honest about who we are, or did it feel like it restricted our ability to fully identify who we are? Um, what about the, the magazines in the waiting room and the general feel of, of waiting for the appointment? And, of course, the, the clinical visit itself, did it feel like we were interacting with healthcare providers that truly um, understand our lives and our lived experiences, or did it feel like we were, um, you know, uh, just sitting there while a doctor checked boxes on some electronic form uh, without really paying attention to, to our whole lives? Um, and, of course, when we have questions for providers, do we feel like we can ask questions uh, without feeling shame or judgment? Um, or are we restricting the questions that we that we ask to our doctors and our other healthcare professionals because of, of fear of, uh, or fear or stigma of of what the response might be? Um, so those are just some examples. But the challenges that that our queer community experiences in healthcare really exist throughout our whole lives. Thank you. I appreciate appreciate hearing that. You know, there's a Got to be hundreds more topics. Um, oh yeah, I mean, in a 26 <laughs> chapter book, and the book is 240 pages, and it's very readable. It's not a scholarly text. It's it's first person. It's mostly first person experiences. So they're they're essays. Um, it's meant to be readable by by anyone, not only by people that have letters like MD or PhD after their name. Um, that was really intentional how this book was designed, but. There's 26 chapters, and there's more than 26 health challenges facing our community. So, for sure, it is not um, it, it is not intended to be you know, the be-all, end-all of our health needs. It's it's to provide an understanding that LGBTQ people experience barriers to care pervasively, and that um, these are these are not biologic problems. These are social problems, and they're fixable problems if we all work for it. Thanks, Sarah Jr. We are discussing bodies and barriers, queer activists on health, a new book 
Oh, this year from PM Press, edited by Adrian Schenker. Uh, what's next, Adrian? Do you think there'll be a specific follow-up to this book uh, for you, or? Well, right now I'm spending a lot of time talking to healthcare professionals um, and also talking to activists about uh, how do we take the lessons from bodies and barriers and apply them. How can mm -hmm. healthcare professionals um, apply these lessons by listening to patient stories? How can they improve care in their own in their own scopes of practice where they work? Uh, and how can activists, whether it's activists for the for the queer community more broadly, or activists for uh, you know healthcare activists more broadly, how can how can activists really take these lessons and apply them. And finally, I'm trying to talk to policymakers as well. How can insurance companies and health networks and government policymakers um, listen to LGBT people's stories and make changes in, that they have power to make? So whether it's a school board uh, member saying, you know, we should really take a look at the sex ed curriculum in this district and ensure that it's LGBT inclusive, or whether it's um, a county-run nursing home where uh, a county executive um, uh, says, you know, uh, we need to make sure that the uh, staff at this county-run nursing home are receiving training on caregiving issues for the LGBT older adult population. You know, policymakers of all kinds make policy that affects the lives of LGBT people, just like healthcare professionals, um, you know, provide health to LGBT people. Um, and just like people that advocate for changes to the healthcare system are advocating for improvements to healthcare for LGBT people. Yeah. The book is Bodies and Barriers, Queer Activists on Health. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us. My um, pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. You're welcome. Take care. If you have to hear your state leader saying that you are not a real human, but you are an ideology, I mean, that must be very, very, very difficult to wake up every morning and to, to know that you are paying taxes for these kind of things. Sometimes some people might be a little hesitant, and I understand, and I can empathize, but at this point of our lives being taken from us at the hands of police for so long, we have got to speak up. No peace! No justice! No peace! Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBT radio magazine. I'm Greg Gordon. Queensland stifles conversion therapy, a Belgian activist assesses Poland's anti-queer crackdown, and U.S. gay teens stand with Black Lives Matter. Those stories and more this week, now that you've discovered This Way Out. I'm Christopher Gall. And I'm Lucia Chappelle. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending August 15th, 2020. Queensland became the first Australian state to outlaw conversion therapy on August 13th 
and a few other jurisdictions in the country are following the lead of its legislative assembly. Conversion therapy is the widely discredited practice that claims to change a queer person's sexual orientation or gender identity. At least in the Western world, virtually every professional medical and mental health organization has condemned it as a waste of time at best. More often, it's a psychologically traumatizing experience for its victims. Queensland Health Minister Stephen Miles calls it harmful, deceptive, and unethical, and told Parliament that being LGBTIQ is not an affliction or disease that requires medical treatment. Convictions carry 12 months in prison, or 18 months if the victim is under 18 years of age. Opponents, like the Australian Christian Lobby, complained that the bill would turn doctors into criminals. However, survivors of the quack therapy are worried because the legislation only applies to healthcare professionals. Two survivor advocate organizations said in a joint statement that the bulk of the harm occurs over time in informal settings, not in therapeutic contexts. In most of those cases, the alleged conversion has a religious component, which critics call trying to pray the gay away. A bill to ban conversion therapy for minors was introduced this week in the Australian Capital Territory. The state government in Victoria began public consultations in October on similar legislation. That horrendous August 4th explosion in Beirut that killed hundreds and injured thousands decimated the city's queer neighborhood and at least two of its organizations. The blast left an estimated 300,000 homeless, including thousands of LGBTQ people. Almost three tons of highly volatile ammonium nitrate had been unsafely stored for six years in the city's port area. Lebanon's entire government resigned in the face of massive street protests in the aftermath of the explosion. They had already faced heavy criticism for corruption and a crumbling economy. Lebanon's leading queer advocacy group is Helm, the Arab world's first LGBTQ rights organization. Their offices, almost half a mile from the epicenter of the explosion, were reduced to rubble. Helm's executive director, Tarek Zedan, said, Nothing much of inside the center remains. Doors, windows, fixtures, furniture, everything was blown out. He says that several staff members were hospitalized but was thankful that no lives were lost. Zaydan declared, we are going to survive and the center will survive. Proud Lebanon is a smaller queer rights group in Beirut whose offices were also badly damaged. Some staff members were seriously injured, according to the queer advocacy group All Out. Fundraising efforts are underway by members of Lebanon's queer expat community in the UK through a GoFundMe page. The global queer rights group Outright Action International is also raising funds to support Helm's rebuilding efforts and to help countless LGBTIQ people who have been left homeless. Transgender rights advanced in two U.S. federal courts this week. A ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit upheld a lower court decision against a Florida school district that had denied a trans male student access to the boys' restrooms. Drew Adams was attending Allen D. Nice High School in Pontevedra in 2017 when he filed suit, represented by Lambda Legal. He's now 19 and a student at the University of Central Florida. 
Adams said in a statement released by Lambda that he was very happy to see justice prevail and that high school is hard enough without having your school separate you from your peers and mark you as inferior. That was on August 7th, and the same day the U.S. District Court of Idaho rejected the state's refusal to allow transgender residents to change their birth certificate gender designations. The same court took similar action in 2018, but the Republican-dominated state legislature tried to get around that ruling. Lambda Legal also represented the two transgender Idahoans who jumped to file the successful lawsuit. A press release issued by the queer legal advocacy group said that the court could not have been clearer. What was discriminatory in 2018 remains discriminatory today. Lambda accused the Idaho legislature and Republican Governor Brad Little of trying to deny the very existence of transgender people by stripping them of their identity. A set of two recent public opinion polls commissioned by the conservative Jamaica Observer newspaper yielded discouraging results for LGBTQ people in the Caribbean nation. 93% of respondents support the colonial era laws that criminalize private consensual adult gay sex. Buggery is an antiquated term for sodomy. A section of the Offenses Against the Person Act punishes buggery with up to 10 years in prison at hard labor. The surveys were conducted March 12th through 15th and July 9th through 12th. 1,200 voting-age Jamaicans were asked if they wanted that law to be changed. Only 3% in March and 5% in July said yes. The sampling error is 2.5%. Jamaican government officials have been discussing a public super-referendum for such socially contentious issues as homosexuality and abortion since 2016. No concrete steps have been taken as yet to initiate such a vote. Former U.S. Vice President and presumptive nominee Joe Biden's choice of California Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate made the Democratic Party's presidential ticket the most queer-supportive in history. Harris is the daughter of immigrant parents, a Jamaican father and an Indian mother born in Oakland, California. She's the first woman of color on a major political party ticket. Echoing the racist, Trump-fueled birther attacks on Barack Obama, Republican operatives are already circulating the absurd theory that Harris is not eligible to hold the office because she's not a U.S. citizen by birth. The new Democratic duo acknowledged the fight for queer equality in their first joint appearance. Biden praised Harris for being an early voice for marriage equality. Harris praised all those in the streets fighting for racial justice, including, in her words, the LGBTQ Americans who know that love is love, and those who are saying that, yes, black lives matter. Virtually every major U.S. queer rights group praised the Biden-Harris ticket. They're already salivating with anticipation over the presidential debates, pitting Biden against liar-in-chief Donald Trump. Veteran queer Democratic activist Richard Socorides also predicts that Harris will eat Mike Pence alive at their vice presidential debate and spit him out on the floor, as he deserves. And the cherry on top of a White House filled with LGBTQ allies in January would be the highly regarded Haitian-American lesbian political operative Corinne Jean-Pierre as Vice President Harris's chief of staff. Finally... The U.S. Post Office has released the first depiction of drag on a U.S. postage stamp. What's up, Doc? 
The San Francisco-based Bay Area reporter was first to report that Bugs Bunny is in drag in two of the 10 new stamps featuring the cartoon rabbit. The series was released on July 27th, the 80th anniversary of the Waskily Wabbit's debut in A Wild Hair. One of the new stamps shows Bugs as a mermaid in blonde wig and ruby red lipstick from one of his Merry Melodies Warner Brother cartoons. The other has Bugs with blonde braided tresses and a gold-winged headpiece as the Brunhilde of Richard Wagner's Siegfried in the classic 1957 animated satire What's Opera, Doc? with Elmer Fudd as the heroic lead. Meanwhile, Donald Trump and his sycophantic followers are trying to completely gut the U.S. Postal Service. He even admits that his ham-picked postmaster general is working to undermine this November's presidential election, most of which will need to be conducted by mail because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Bugs Bunny series are forever stamps, so if the Postal Service and the rest of us survive Donald Trump, there'll forever be enough postage for first-class mail of one ounce or less. You can get the series online at usps.com slash bugsbunny80. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending August 15th, 2020. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is recording remotely during the COVID-19 emergency, but is still being written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio YouTube channel. For This Way Out, I'm Lucia Chappell. Stay healthy. And I'm Christopher Gall. Stay safe. No peace! No justice! No peace! No justice! This reminds us in the LGBTQ community of the beginnings of our own fight. Black and brown LGBTQ activists were crucial to the modern gay liberation movement in its nascency. Queer youth find the Stonewall Black Lives Matter link later in the program. The LGBTI community gets scapegoated from basically everything, portrayed as a Western ideology. A lot of Polish activists fear that Poland is going into the same direction as Russia has been going. So yeah, the, the LGBTI community in Poland at the moment is very, very pessimistic about their future. The LGBTQ community in Poland has good reason to be pessimistic and optimistic at the same time. Belgian gay activist and political scientist Rimi Bonny traveled to Warsaw to support the movement in the wake of the re-election of homophobic President Andrzej Duda. Activists have been arrested, pro-queer MPs harassed, random gays have been beaten in the streets, and yet the powerful response from the community has been called Poland's Stonewall. Bonnie talked last time with This Way Out Sydney-based correspondent William Broom about the ongoing crisis. Their conversation now links that situation to right-wing activity throughout Europe. Can you tell us a bit about the Knife International Movement and what it's about and also Poland's involvement? They're also often called SO. It's, an, it's basically a far-right neo-Nazi group from Russia and they are responsible for instance for the Killing for the murder on uh, Yelena Grigorieva last year. Yelena Grigorieva was one of the was was one of the the most open lesbian 
uh, activists based in St. Petersburg in Russia. Uh, and she has been murdered by a very far-right group last year in, in, in Russia. And that was the group behind it. And now, yes, they have been um, announcing uh, that they will not stop at the Russian border, but they will also target LGBTI activists in Western Europe. Uh, one of them is the Netherlands, and I've been in contact with the people, with people in the Netherlands about it. Um, we, at this moment, uh, assume that they are mainly targeting people from Chechnya, uh, that's something that we already assumed for many years, actually, that people fleeing from Chechnya to yeah, flee from persecution because of their sexual orientation, that they uh, are being targeted by yeah, Russian and Chechen far-right groups also in Europe. Um, we had murders of Chechens, not LGBTI Chechens, but Chechen human rights activists uh, already in Europe by yeah, people linked to the Chechen government. So at this moment, especially the, the case in the Netherlands, we assume that it's mainly targeting gay people from Chechnya. What is life like for the average LGBTIQ-identifying person in Poland? Yeah, it's a very, very difficult life, of course. I mean, if you have to hear the, your state leader saying that you are not a real, a real human, but you are an ideology, I mean, that must be very, very, very difficult to wake up every morning and to, to know that you are paying taxes for that kind of country and these kind of things. But on the other hand, Poland, as I, as I already told you, it's a very, very divided country. And the division is between cities which are very, very Western and progressive, where there is often a very, very vibrant and big gay nightlife scene, for instance, and the countryside, where yeah, the countryside is all is, is more or less comparable to to Russia, uh, if it comes to conservativeness. So yeah, on the countryside, people if they are openly gay, they basically flee to the bigger cities, and in the bigger cities, they have a more or less open life. What we do see is that people often stay into the closet for the rest of their lives with their families. That's a matter of fact, especially younger people who come from this countryside and go to the bigger cities. They often, as I told you have a very relatively open life even at work but yeah they do stay in the end of the closet with their families so it's a very very divided country but yeah the, the most harmful thing at this moment is, is, the, is the rhetoric being used by the politicians uh, especially imagine that you are uh, let's say a 14 years old boy or girl discovering his sexual orientation or, or gender identity you're in school and you have to hear that the local government where your school is based has declared itself an LGBTI free zone that your president is saying that you what you are struggling and that's dehuman basically is there anything that the world community can do to help LGBTIQ people in Poland or offer some yeah. form of solidarity yeah the main thing that you can do is, is of course share the stories and about what is happening in, in, in Poland at this moment um, because of course as I, as I told you Poland was in the last 20 years was a country who was going from communism to a liberal democracy um, and it was almost in its final stages of getting a real liberal democracy and now everything is going backwards again in Poland so also the understanding that what is happening in Poland might also at some point happen in your own country and that's not just you don't just have to support the Polish people but it's also to support yourself uh, to consolidate LGBTI rights and our normal lives. That's the first thing that we can do, of course, but also on a European level, people from Europe should demand from their own politicians, from their personal member of the European Parliament to act upon it, upon this. 
um, Europe can do a lot against this. Europe can take away uh, all subsidies that, is go- that are going to Poland, for instance. Poland is very, very reliant on uh, funding coming from the European Union. So if, if Europe somehow links their funding to upholding at least human rights, that would already change a lot for Poland. So, yeah, uh, also just demanding from your own uh, politicians to, to act upon this. Uh, and that's also uh, the same for for people living in the U.S. On a diplomatic uh, channel, of course, there are a lot of, of, of links between Poland and the U.S. And also Poland is very dependent on U.S. investments. So uh, demand your own politicians. I'm, I know it's going to be difficult with the current White House, but uh, yeah, to act also in a, in a diplomatic way to, to, to change all of this. And finally, Remy, can you tell us how we can find out about your great work that you're doing? Yeah, so you can go to my Twitter. Uh, there is just Remy Bonnie, my, uh, my name. Uh, or you can go to my website, remybonnie.com, and subscribe to my newsletter. Rumi Bonnie in Warsaw, thank you so much for joining us. This is William Broom in Sydney, Australia for This Way Out. I'm Roman Kalinin from Moscow. You are listening to This Way Out. Оставайтесь на нашей волне. Stay on our wavelength. The home of the infamous U.S. federal prison Sing Sing may seem like a strange place to get an education in anti-racism and join up with the movement against police brutality but these queer teens went to Austining, New York to do just that. This is Outcasting Overtime from Media for the Public Good, producer of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi, I'm Lucas, an Outcasting youth participant. In 2019, New York City hosted World Pride for the first time and celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. As it has for decades, The celebration included elaborate floats, rainbows everywhere, and a party that seemed to go on all month long. In 2020, of course, LGBTQ Pride Month in New York looked very different because of both the mass shutdown caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests, sparked by the killings of black people by police without apparent justification. Most recently at that point, the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. This reminds us in the LGBTQ community of the beginnings of our own fight. Black and brown LGBTQ activists were crucial to the modern gay liberation movement in its nascency. Marsha P. Johnson, a black transgender woman, was a key figure in starting the Stonewall Uprising in 1969, which arose out of a police raid of a gay bar, the Stonewall Inn, in Greenwich Village in New York City. The first gay pride march a year after the Stonewall Uprising was a celebration of gay militancy and the activism that had taken hold during that first year after Stonewall. Over the decades, it grew into a spectacular celebration involving millions of people in New York City, not to mention countless more in cities around the world. Some people think that the march has grown too spectacular and commercial, and in 2019, a group called the Reclaim Pride Coalition held an alternative march intended to get back to the spirit of the first gay pride marches. 
2020, the COVID pandemic caused the initial cancellation of both the main and alternative marches, but the killing of George Floyd prompted the Reclaim Pride Coalition to undo the cancellation of its alternative march and hold a protest march specifically in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. The fight for LGBTQ equality is not done until everyone is equal, both in and outside the LGBTQ community, including brown and black people. Black lives are human lives, and here at Outcasting, in observance of LGBTQ Pride Month, we wanted to amplify the voices of our black neighbors fighting to end systematic racism and police brutality. On Saturday, June 6th, the peaceful town of Ossining in New York's lower Hudson River Valley came alive and made its voice heard. Hundreds of people gathered at the Hudson River waterfront and marched through town to another park to protest police brutality and to show their support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Black activists of all ages, youth performers, and the Ossining Police Department expressed their grief and outrage at the deaths of George Floyd and so many other black Americans. Nadia Zaydan, one of the youth organizers of the June 6th protest, spoke about what Black Lives Matter means to her as a non-black person of color. As a person of color, I do know, I do understand on a personal level what it means to face these like microaggressions, these racial injustices, and I know how it feels for your race and for your appearance to be an additional stressor in your life. And it really does take a toll on you. And right now, like, if we're being honest, it is the worst for black individuals in America right now. So I just think we need to, like, stand up for the people who need to be heard the most. Because knowing how it feels, nobody deserves that. Nobody ever deserves to have their race or the way they look be an additional stressor on their life. That should not be a hardship for them. Because a lot of people will try to say we're colorblind or that they're not racist. <laughs> or that they're not racist but colorblindness does not exist because it is a system of oppression and a system of privilege that is working against people of color in our country and people really do have to speak out against that and speak out against that system we have to reform that system we have to change that and we're never going to change that system if people don't recognize their own privilege and if people don't listen to the voices that need to be heard Cheyenne Bell another youth organizer, told us why she's fighting. To me, I would think it's doing what's right for people of color, specifically black people. It's fighting for something that we should have gotten a long time ago, but never gotten. It's, it's so much more than just protesting and posting. It's fighting for what we need as people to, to survive. Don't shoot! Don't shoot! After two hours of marching through the streets, the group spread out across a baseball diamond to hear a prayer, a song, and a speech, all demanding action. A woman in the audience held up a large rainbow flag with BLM written in bold letters. Finally, the whole park fell silent as everyone went down on one knee for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, the same amount of time that the Minneapolis police officer knelt on George Floyd's neck, causing his death. When the event was over, I spoke with Jelaine Knowles, one of the featured speakers. The Black Lives Matter movement means the world to me right now, especially because of just, I feel as if enough is enough. Enough has been enough, but now our momentum has changed and people are speaking up. And what 
this movement, this movement's different right now because I believe there's more people who are advocating, more people who are willing to educate themselves, more people who are willing to listen, and we're forming allyship. And for, for me personally, my main focus in this is our youth, our kids. I work with kids at Roseville Elementary School here in Austin, and I absolutely adore them, and I want a better future for them because they ask me questions about this. I want to give, tell them that their future is going to be better. And I am just so passionate about how we need, we need equity right now. We need help. You are listening to KBOO Portland. Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying.